1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season is a year-round event. We are all here, albeit in different recording spaces. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And in New York is Mike Hogan, our digital director. Hey, Katie. In Oakland is our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. (laughs) Hi, Katie. And on the coast of France is our critic Richard Lawson.
2: Bonsoir. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You're going to do this entire podcast in French just to spite us, right?
2: Uh, C, is that that friend are
1: too. great. Uh, so, we're going to quiz Richard about Cannes thus far. As we're speaking, uh, the s- films have not yet started screening, but there's lots of buzz to dig through. But, real quick, first of all, news broke today as we record this that Jimmy Kimmel will be back as the host of the Oscars next year, which I find particularly funny because uh, at the end of this year's ceremony, which you might remember ended chaotically, he said something along the lines of, Good night, and I promise I'll never come back, or something like that, kind of self deprecatingly take the blame. But he's kind back and I I think this is a pretty great idea what do you guys think
3: I think he was terrific I think the show was really good he has that sort of weird Bob Hope quality that is kind of easy on the it's it's not the grading and you kind of just feel like you're in pretty good hands he does tells good jokes but it's not really all about him and I'm surprised, but pleased that they brought back not only Jimmy Kimmel, but but the producers Michael De and Jennifer Todd, who who put together a really good Oscars right up until the moment that everything went completely to hell. But but that was really I, arguably not their fault, or if nothing else, they um they will have learned enough lessons to prevent something like that from happening again.
0: The big news, right, is that Jimmy Kimmel was sort of announced late very late last year in terms of announcing oscar hosts and i seem to remember there being some behind the scenes drama about that some rumors that maybe he and his camp were not very happy with the lateness of the announcement i believe we reported that actually that Re- uh, rebecca keegan
1: had heard that directly so yeah it was, uh, all
0: right was frustrated not rumor but fact um <laughs> <laughs> year this is insanely early right to announce an oscar host so really early yeah so you know that that's fascinating to me and I, you know i think the way that kimmel handled the whole moonlight la la land debacle really must have endeared him and then also there's you know the kimmel stock is very much on the rise given his very impassioned monologue that he gave about his son's own experience on his show like that can't help but sort of I know that it endeared him to a lot of people. And so if the Academy sort of wants to cement this, you know, as Mike puts it, this very sort of warm, welcoming, he's not like, it's not quite dad joke territory, but you know, it's like America's dad maybe. And, and I, you know, staring down the barrel of maybe years of Kimmel hosting, I don't feel like I would mind at all.
3: Yeah. And, and we know from experience, it takes a long time to, To put an event like this together, you know, basically the Vanity Fair year now is six months on Oscar party, six months on our our, on our new establishment summit. So to give themselves not only six months, but whatever this is, you know, nine, ten months, and and to get the band back together very quickly, it just gives them a chance to think it through properly and really make a better show. In my opinion, you know, I, I, I think it makes sense that they came out of that show saying. Jesus Christ! We were almost killed by a disaster, but on the other hand, like that was fun, and and there's more that we can all do together.
2: I was speaking with with Rached uh, here in in France about about the the Kimmel thing, and you know she said expressed the same sentiment that um, giving him a lot of time, given that he he does a live show, he does a you know talk show every day, and uh, he, he just had a kid, and you know uh, under some sort of certain medical circumstances. So like it's a nice allotment of time for for him to really. Uh, and his writers and to figure out what's going on. But yeah, I don't know. I think that like he has obviously one huge joke to build off of and then can go from there. So I'm cautiously optimistic about it.
0: Do we want the Matt Damon thing to be a two-year running joke? Or should we? I forgot that the Matt Damon thing came up because
1: so much else happened in those Oscars. Uh, I'm a fan of that running joke. I imagine it's it's too much part of what he does to not come up at all. But uh, I mean, Matt Damon seems game. I'm game.
3: Matt Damon's like the Jack Nicholson figure now going forward perhaps. But they'll they'll find a way to keep it fresh or else they won't do it, I assume. I actually have that kind of faith in Jimmy Kimmel which probably says something.
0: Yeah, I think you're I think you're right, Mike, that if Kimmel hosts, they will put Matt Damon in the front row, which he wasn't in this year. But if Kimmel's hosting, I feel like they'll put Damon right in the front row, and as long as Kimmel hosts, Damon would be there.
3: I'd say they should dress him up like Jack Nicholson, but I don't think anyone at home would even know what that reference was.
0: Like sunglasses and some shit Yeah, bald,
3: bald cap.
1: I was even a fan of the bit where he brought the people off the tour bus. So I yes. uh, I think I was more in the tank for Kimmel than even a lot of people. So I th- I, I'm really impressed that they decided to just go ahead and commit this early.
3: By the way, another thing that's interesting, though, is that Don't they not have a president yet? Haven't they not determined who their next president is going to be?
1: Yeah, there's a uh, there's a lot of going on in terms of finding the uh, the president and the board of directors. Um, although, as far as I know, and I, I wish Rebecca were here with us to kind of go through the fine parts of this, but ABC has a really big say in both the host and the show producers. So okay. this may have been something that the uh, the ABC was kind of able to do with someone at the Academy giving their blessing without necessarily the successor to Cheryl Ben Isaac's uh, being able to sign off.
3: We're not in danger of a Merrick Garland situation where the new president <laughs> says oh, we're not a, we're not going to confirm Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs>
1: (laughs) (laughs) Although if that happened, I would be very interested in uh, Rebecca's reporting on the behind. the scenes Yeah, that would be good. So at the end of the show, we're going to share Mike's interview with Anthony Michael Hall, who is in Netflix's upcoming movie War Machine. But before we share the interview, we're going to catch up with Richard about what's going on at Cannes since he's there on the ground. Uh, Richard, how are things going
2: over there so far? Trey Bian, I just got here uh, this morning. I'm good and jet lagged, but uh, ready to go.
1: So, we want you to kind of explain CAN to us because I think for those of us who don't get to go, it becomes this kind of rush of pictures of people in front of yachts and you know foreign auteurs whose names you might not have heard of and then Nicole Kidman wearing a whole bunch of different gowns so as you're getting there as you're talking to people like what are, what are people expecting from this can in general is there an overall buzz of if, if it's going to be a good year a bad year it's a uh, some mysteries on the schedule
2: well I, I kind of like to think of canon as, as three different kind of festivals one is all that glamour and red carpet and you know, brand deals where celebrities will fly in and because you know some makeup company has is giving them some award to you know to get them to a party so they can take photos of them. And that's a fun aspect of it. that's more of the nightlife. And then there's the market, which is a lot of people from all over the world who are doing distribution deals and video deals and all this kind of stuff. And that's a very separate part of the festival that I really don't have much experience in. And then the third part, my my part is just the the movies which are you know either in the main competition or in sort of sidebars. And that is exciting this year because it's, it's a nice round number. It's the 70th Cannes uh, Film Festival. So there's some fanfare surrounding that combined, I think, with some perhaps slight political tension. I mean, Marine Le Pen, thank God, didn't win the French election. But there is still a lot of tension in this country as there is in our own. So I think it should make for a pretty interesting and potentially charged festival.
1: So looking at your schedule of what you're planning to see, it looks like you're kicking things off on Thursday with, or the the, kind of the first major title that I'm looking at Todd Haynes is wonderstruck, which is really interesting. He was there just two years ago with Carol, maybe three years ago, but this seems like a really big uh, change for him.
2: Yeah, people don't really quite know what to make of this yet. A poster was released either early this week or late last that makes it look sort of fantastical. And it's about two different kids and two different timelines who are sort of both chasing after the same thing. This is the vague plot description I've gotten. Uh, I heard rumors that could be apocryphal. Who knows that half of the movie is sort of sans dialogue because the actress and the character is, is deaf. So... You know, but just based on the strength of Todd Haynes' filmmaking, especially Carol two years ago that really took this festival uh, or kind of, you know, this festival fell in love with Carol. Definitely expectations are high. It's starting the festival off. Um, It's not the first film, but it's the first sort of thing with, you know, let's be honest, big American movie stars with Julianne Moore, (laughs) Michelle Williams in particular.
1: Do you have to be kind of embarrassed about that when you come to Cannes and want to see movies with big American movie stars? Or does everyone kind of admit that, that it's part of the game?
2: You know, I will say that uh, when I first started coming here, this is my fourth time, the first year, Mike can attest to this, he was with me, I had a big sort of realization where i was like wow i don't know much about international cinema and so I've, I've tried to play catch up since and sort of hid my my impulses toward the the english language and movie star driven stuff but now i think you know we can embrace that aspect of it as well as the wonderful you know foreign language things that i get to see and that later you know everyone else gets to see like tony erdman or l or whatever else kind of comes barreling out of this festival and into uh, your local art house if you're lucky to have a local art house
3: Funny you call that a realization when in fact I told you I would fire you if you didn't get better uh at foreign language <laughs> films.
2: I, Mike, I thought we signed an NDA about that.
3: <laughs> Sorry, go on with your update, your 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 preview. <laughs>
1: Well, you mentioned L, which is really interesting because, you know, you get you get canon, you hear about certain titles that are like the big deal that everyone's kind of got their eye on. But every year there is something. I mean, Tony Erdman was was its own kind of breakout hit. But then something like L, which made its way through award season and then Isabel Huppert got an Oscar nomination. Like it's can seems to have this power to kind of take these movies that maybe European, maybe not that like might not get a boost and then slowly make their way through. Do do you sense some uh, potential L like hits lurking this year?
2: yeah, I mean, you know that's one great thing about the Cannes Festival from an American perspective. You know, we're unlike a lot of countries where their film industries are relatively smaller, so they're used to lots of imports. you can, an American can easily go a year without seeing a movie that's not made by Americans. But what cannes does, I think, for us, is it solidifies at least a few major foreign language titles that we can kind of focus on as the year progresses. And, you know, this year obviously is no exception. Um, I think the one that's top of my list is another Isabelle Huppert movie, this time from Michael Hanneke, who she's worked with in the past in Amour, which got a Best Picture nomination as well as winning the Palm d'Or, here at can. And this is a movie about, supposedly kind of set against the backdrop of the French refugee crisis, so it's very timely. Even though the movie is called Happy Time, this being a Hanneke movie, I don't think it's going to be very happy.
1: <laughs> like his movie called Love that was about uh, elderly people dying?
2: Ah, uh, yeah, that was about how we all die someday, and it's a horrible, horrible <laughs> process. <laughs> but yeah,
1: the poster for that Hanukkah movie came out today, and it um, you say it's about the French refugee refugee crisis, and the poster kind of has the icons of an iPhone recording screen, which automatically makes me think of his movie Cachet, which is about someone being recorded. So I'm I'm really intrigued to see if like he's deliberately playing on that. It seems like he could, he could have made a shot-for-shot shot remake of Cachet and then uh, not told anyone because he's done that before. So that's especially intriguing to me.
2: Yeah, who knows? I mean, there's the obvious cachet comparison, too. Yeah, absolutely. Which I, I love that movie. I think it's one of the best movies made this century, maybe. So I'm, I'm really intrigued about that. Uh, there's another film from a South Korean director named Hong Sang-soo. Uh, he made a movie in 2015 called Right Now, Wrong Then. Uh, and this movie is called Gyu-hoo. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. But I know that amongst my very in the know critic friends who are here, who you know are very, who are better at international cinema than I am, that that's really high on people's list. It's something set in the publishing industry. It seems to be kind of a mistaken identity drama. People are excited about that, and then I'm particularly excited myself for a movie called 120 Beats Per Minute, which is another French movie from a director named Robin Campillo, who in 2013 made a movie called Eastern Boys, which is this really great, underlooked kind of queer movie, Uh, and this one, um, 120 beats per minute, is about the gay rights movement in 1990s Paris, so it's about ACT UP Paris. You know, we have seen a lot of How to Survive a Plague or The Normal Heart or uh, When We We Rise, the recent NBC miniseries or ABC miniseries about the gay rights movement, but this is from a French perspective, so I'm really curious about that, and it could potentially speak to the political moment.
1: Joanna, what are you excited about or intrigued to learn about?
0: Well, you know, obviously one of the big stories out of can that would catch my eye of course is uh, the tv presence that's there this year that just it feels like can the the sort of snooty european film festival to end all snooty european film festivals deigning to include television is an amazing thing but we've got david lynch's twin peaks which is premiering oddly after it airs on showtime i don't i don't Quite understand why, um, except you know, in, in an old newsletter of hers back from back in April thirteenth, Rebecca Keegan sort of re- recalls this trip she took to Telluride where the director of the Cannes Film Festival sort of stopped by her table to talk to Laura Dern and say, what what do we have to do to get David back, David Lynch back at the Cannes Film Festival? And so they're like, uh, a rerun of Twin Peaks? We'll take it. Um, so <laughs> there's that, and of course there's there's Top of the Lake. So yeah, I'm really interested to see how Can embraces TV this year and and whether or not that will go over well or poorly with the, the audience and attendance there.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's been some scandals, not scandal, but there's been some controversy surrounding the presence of television properties and um, Netflix. Netflix has a movie here called Okja from Bong Joon-ho, who directed Snowpiercer and The Host and a lot of other good movies. And that's already going to be on Netflix this summer. And there are big posters for it all, all, all along the cross set right now. And there was some controversy about whether things have to play theatrically in order to play can, especially in the competition, which Okja is. So there's a lot of this talk that, um, you know, for a long time, Cannes has been this sort of bastion of cinema. And even, you know, now, like even a stalwart festival like this, the television thing is invading. So that should be interesting. And I would stress, Joanna, that while Twin Peaks is premiering on Showtime in the United States before the premiere here, I don't think it is elsewhere. So it's still a premiere for a lot of people. Oh, uh, okay.
1: Well, you say that Canada is a bastion for cinema and, uh, it's also always been a bastion. Like you were saying with the market, um, where you get all these, you know, movies looking for European financing. They don't exist yet. Uh, and also studio publicity stunts. And in a preview that, uh, Rebecca Keegan uh, put on the site today, she talked about how the studios are staying home this year in, in terms of big splashy premieres. Like there's not uh, a, you know, a big like Shrek three premiering this year, but they did have a stunt today where they had, uh, the star of the emoji movie parasailing over uh, Cannes. can. Did you happen to see this, Richard? Are you watching the uh, studio publicity stunt game?
2: Oh, I'm always watching it when I'm here. You know, last year, um, my colleague, Julie, our our colleague, Julie Miller and I had had the pleasure of going to a kind of wild trolls event. And there is a post about it on VF.com if you want to search VF or Vanity Fair Trolls can that it'll come right up. (laughs) So we were eager to hear about this emoji event, which TJ Miller from Silicon Valley, who is one of the voice star of the emoji movie. Yeah, he parasailed onto the beach, and then there was a press event. Unfortunately, it was kind of around the same time we were checking into our Airbnb and everything, so we, we did miss it. But, you know, I'm sure there will be other similar stunts, maybe not quite as big, but um, to be found throughout the festival. But, yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing about Cannes is that, like, while it does have this reputation, deservedly so, for, you know, high glamour and sophistication, it is also, you know, it's a huge uh, market and it's a huge money-making promotional tool for, you know, studios, both American and, and not. So there's a little bit of the high-low kind of working. It seems a little bit like the, the low is is less uh, present here this year, but uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll try to find some for you.
1: I'm sure some movie will be terrible and booed and that will be the low you just can't see it coming at.
2: Oh, for sure. And you know, you know, it wouldn't be a can without some sort of scandal involving an old man who has a f- really frightening, bad <laughs> sexual history. And hey, lo and behold, one of the last movies to screen here, if not the last is a Roman Polanski movie. Hey! So uh, last year, we had Woody Allen. And this year, we have Roman Polanski. Uh, that is no endorsement of either of those people. But uh, it should be noted that in um, its either even though, even though it's at the very end, um, I'm sure there will be some amount of something uh, surrounding him in that film.
1: So looking a little bit ahead to what else is premiering later, I think Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled maybe has gotten uh, the most attention of any movie premiering there, or at least close to it, partly because it's one of four projects that Nicole Kidman is representing. And, uh, you know, Sofia Coppola is obviously a filmmaker we like to watch, but you're hearing you're hearing some interesting stuff about it at this point.
2: Yes, I am. Um, I mean, it should be noted that um, uh, starting next year, this is going to be known as the Nicole Kidman International Film Festival. So they've yeah, decided to go a different, they're doing what's called a pivot so it'll just be all Nicole Kidman projects this year. This is kind of the the dry run. Yeah, so this movie, The Beguiled, Sofia Coppola's new movie, it's a kind of Civil War-set, gothic horror, it looks to be. A trailer came out a long time ago, or a few months ago, so I think that's partly why it's had a lot more buzz than some of the other titles that we know very little about. But the kind of word on the ground here, if if you listen closely on the wind is that people are kind of down on this movie. I don't know who's seen it yet, but there's, a, there's some whispering that it might not be uh, the movie we we're all hoping it is.
1: Although it should be said, this happens with almost every Sofia Coppola movie, it seems. Like, uh, Somewhere definitely had its skeptics, and the bling ring did too. So, and Marie Antoinette famously got booed. So, I, I, I'm disappointed to hear that, but I feel like I, I can't count it out yet.
2: Yeah. And the patient zero for these kind of rumors could always be someone who just doesn't like Sofia Coppola movies, you know, saying, you know, nothing happens or it's boring. Where that's what a lot of people, myself included, really like about Sofia Coppola movies, that they are sort of not reliant on he- you know heavy plot, that they're more sort of atmospheric and mood. So it could be, you know, another masterpiece from her. She is a staple of the Cannes Film Festival, so it's not a surprise that the movies here, whether it's good or bad. But, you know, though I have heard these rumblings, I am I'm choosing to, you know, when they go low, I'm going to go high and, and go in with an open mind.
3: Well, I'm one of the weird people who kind of hates Lost in Translation on principle, but absolutely adores Marie Antoinette. Like, I feel like it's one of my favorite movies of all time. So, you know, I think that's kind of what's good about Sofia Coppola is you, you rarely walk out in a lukewarm mood about anything related to her.
2: I think that's right, Mike. And I think that that is, I mean, at least in my experience, a hallmark of this festival, you know, that like, it's, there's a lot of stuff here that's love or hate, you know, and um, there is, of course, there's always going to be a lukewarm thing. But like, I'm thinking last year to the Personal Shopper, a movie that I adored. It's so weird and strange. It's an Olivia Sayas movie starring Kristen Stewart. It's about ghosts. I think it's fantastic. One of the best movies that, well, it actually came out this year, but, uh, but a lot of people hated that movie and it got booed. So there is that kind of fun black or white absolutism to be found because everyone's kind of whipping each other up into being passionate about something either way. And, and I think that that's, you know, it, it, the French setting certainly contributes to that. And it's why I think for my money, it's the most exciting of the film festivals that we go to, though. It's not always the most kind of productive for our sort of Oscar purposes. That would probably be Toronto or Telluride.
0: Uh,
1: All right, Richard, personal favorite, like of all the things that you're going to be seeing of all the international tours you're going to learn about, like, what are you just actually really excited to see?
2: Well, I have talked about it, I think, a few times already on this podcast, but I'm going to say it again. Yorgos Lanthimos, who made The Lobster, uh, which I loved, uh, saw that can two years ago, has a movie called The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Um, that's at the festival another movie starring colin farrell and nicole kidman they're just kind of this dynamic duo here again next year nicole kidman international film festival and then probably the year after the colin farrell uh, festival but uh, this one is very shrouded a mystery but it's apparently about a a teenage boy comes into a man's life and he kind of adopts him and then things go wrong so it could be a horror movie it could be a drama hard to tell knowing lanthimos's style it's going to be dark no matter what and something I've mentioned before on this podcast is that on IMDb, second build is Alicia Silverstone in a, mm-hmm. in, which is a completely out of nowhere. But troublingly, my colleagues and I, Julie and Rebecca Keegan, went down to uh, pick up our badges today and got our bags and our all our swag. And included in that is the big, you know, nicely bound guide to all the films at the festival and they have the cast list for this movie and alicia silverstone's not listed in it so i'm worried that she's maybe some tiny part and i've just been fooled by imdb's algorithm
0: uh, imdb unreliable again how dare you
2: she's actually the director
0: <laughs> she, she's been she, Yorgos lanthimos
2: she in fact <laughs> plays the sacred deer that's killed at the beginning of the film. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a big, a, it's, a, it's a reference to her um, you know, very animal rights thing. That I'm very excited about um or and certainly very curious about. There's a Noah Baumbach film that seems to be a kind of adult children coming home to deal with their writer father with Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler and Justin Hoffman and Emma Thompson. That could be interesting.
3: Adam Sandler could get the people booing potentially. Although it's hard to imagine Noah Baumbach getting people booing.
2: You never know because I was, look, I was writing a preview that'll be up on the site when this episode airs um, that I, this is the first time Bombax premiered a movie at Cannes. He's done Toronto, uh-huh. he's done Sundance, so I will be, I'll be curious to see how that plays here.
3: I want to make a bold prediction and say that Adam Sandler is going to become the, the 21st century Jerry Lewis of France following this. It's going to start here and he's going to have a long career making... I guess that wouldn't happen. He'd go to China at this point.
2: I don't know, Mike. They could. The French could rediscover the cobbler, and 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 (laughs) masterwork. You never know with these people. And I was just the last one I want to mention. Actually, two more I want to mention really quick is Lynn Ramsey has a new movie here. She directed We, we Need to Talk About Kevin that was a can a few years ago. This is a drama thriller about Joaquin Phoenix playing a veteran who is trying to rescue a woman from sex trafficking. And again, things go wrong. So that could be really, really grim and dark. But I'm, I'm you know, as always, Lynn Ramsey is a, is a really fascinating filmmaker. So I'm excited to see that. And then last of all, is Ruben Östlund who made a movie called Force Majeure a few years ago that was a huge hit at Cannes and, and, and subsequently got great reviews in the States. And this one is about the art world. It's I think it's English language, primarily Elizabeth Moss is in it. it shows she's, she has two things here with um, that and um, Top of the Lake. So yeah, I just love Force Majeure so much that I can't help but be infinitely curious about what this new one called The Square is all about. I mean, it could be squirm inducing, but I'm ready.
1: One last thing to make you promote before we let you go uh, drink some rosé and smoke some cigarettes on a rocky French cliff. Uh, We're going to have our Vanity Fair party this year, and you will be there uh, with Julie Miller covering the whole thing. I guess people should keep an eye out for that, too.
3: And Alicia Silverstone will be there um, fresh from her performance as the avalanche in The Square. (laughs)
2: Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. I mean, I kind of hope that I get to the party and Alicia Silverstone is just like in the hotel, hotel, Du cap pool, sort of like, just like, like a Bubsy Berkeley kind of thing. Just like, yes, just like dancing part of the decor. But yeah, no, the, the VF party is always, it's a really nice, intimate event. And it's at this beautiful the hotel, Du cap in Antibes, which is just this like, mind-bogglingly stunning place. So that's always a nice time. I brought an appropriate suit this year. I think I was a little overdressed last year. I wore black, but it was more of a sort of chic cocktail attire. so i'm 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 ready. Uh, I can't, I, it's always fun to write that party report and kind of see who's there. So yeah, I think we're going to, we're really doing the full court press here. It's me and Julie Miller and Rebecca Keegan. They're going to be reporting stuff. I'm going to be reviewing our stringer, Jordan Hoffman's reviewing. We have a photo studio. It's going to be, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be your, your one-stop candidate stop, I think.
1: And Mike, you'll be there for the party to check up on Richard and make sure he's not harassing Alicia Silverstone.
3: And I'll be checking on Richard's progress in learning about non-English language films. I'll be we'll be doing an informal quiz at various <laughs> times throughout the night.
1: I think it's like called a performance review. HR is sending you, right? Well, Richard, go do your research, and we will. I guess we'll talk to you next week after you've uh, seen some movies. <sighs>
2: Yeah, I hopefully we will have a lot to report. Um, there's, it's a big weekend coming up, as always is true of, of this festival. Um, you know, they, they kind of pack a lot in the front, but then save some stuff for the end. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's shaping up to be a good year. And, uh, you know, hopefully, I don't know, French nationalists don't overtake the festival. Who knows? <laughs>
1: God. <laughs> well, we'll end that on a bright note and look forward to catching up next week.
2: Yeah, that was a real Michael Michael Hanukkah end to this segment. (laughs) (laughs) Happy end.
1: (laughs) So now we're going to share Mike's interview with Anthony Michael Hall. And uh, Mike, you were really intrigued to talk to him for this movie, not just because the movie is really fascinating, but because Anthony Michael Hall plays Michael Flynn, who is a guy who you may be hearing about in the news these days.
3: Yeah, there's a, lot, there's, there's a lot going on here for me personally with this interview, uh, starting with the fact that I grew up on, as, as he and I talk about, I grew up on his movies, first and foremost, National Lampoon's Vacation, which I have watched something like 578 times, including every time my family went on a vacation, we would watch it the night before. So I feel like I kind of grew up with Anthony Michael Hall. I'm fascinated by his evolution as an actor. He made uh, after vacation, he made three incredible uh, John Hughes movies, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Weird Science, and then opted not to make uh, Pretty in Pink. And basically, uh, you know, the story goes, he was worried about being typecast and and, and took a different direction. And you can still sense in him that he is, you know, he's a kind of a restless actor. He really wants to do high quality stuff. He needs to feel like he's passionate about it, that, you know, he needs to, he's always looking for great collaborators. So uh, this role is this interesting one, because when he first took it, Nobody was thinking about Michael Flynn. You know, Michael Flynn was basically General Stanley McChrystal's sidekick. Who did get a role in the Obama administration and then ended up being kind of, you know, crapping out in that role. But it was it was only after, you know, the Trump presidency became a real thing that Michael Flynn became not only the very, very short lived national security advisor, but also really kind of exhibit A in this ongoing bizarre Russia scandal. So we talk a little bit about that, about what it's like to kind of take a role, make the movie, and then after the movie's done shooting, see that your character has become a huge national figure. But the one other thing I should quickly mention is that I have a weird connection to War Machine, which is that my fiance Elise Jordan, her, her late husband, wrote the book that is based on, Michael Hastings. The book's called The Operators. It's an amazing book. So I, I'm not going to weigh in on the quality of the film, really, just because of that conflict. But I do think it's worth seeing. And, and Anthony Michael Hall has a not huge, but really, really key and, and great part in the film. And obviously, Brad Pitt stars as the character based on Stanley Crystal.
1: That was an amazing intro, Mike, so I guess we should just kick it right to you and Anthony Michael Hall.
3: Well, I am thrilled to be here with Anthony Michael Hall, one of my favorite actors throughout my whole life, and uh, a really incredibly important and effective and hilarious part of the new Netflix film directed by David Michaud called War Machine, starring Brad Pitt. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming.
4: Thank you, sir. It's a a pleasure to be here.
3: I wanted to start. Let's go right to the Brad Pitt thing. Did you
4: guys know each other before? We did not. um, Yeah. Yeah, you know, I had not uh, had the opportunity to meet uh, Mr. Pitt, and I'd always been a fan. I think that he's a fantastic actor and clearly a a major movie star. But, you know, as a person, I was really impressed. He's got a a, a wonderful way about him. He's a real gentleman. Yeah. And he has a way of, um, you know, just putting people at ease. And he was, uh, you know, a real privilege to work with him and for him.
3: And you were kind of his, your character, Greg Pulver, is kind of his sidekick, right? Uh, a, A little bit. I mean, you guys must have spent a lot of time together.
4: You know, it was really mostly on set because, again, away from the set, you know, his private life was his own, of course. Oh, sure, yeah. And, um, absolutely, but we had a great time on set, and the character that I played was, you know, was based on General Mike Flynn, and it was inspired, like the film, by the book The Operators, by Michael Hastings, but Mr. Michaud, you know, chose to go in a different direction, and I think the film is great, it's a film for our times, I think it's a dark satire that really speaks to, you know, sort of the political war machine, as we know it, and, um... I think it's a powerful film. I'm really, really, truly proud of it.
3: Yeah. What was your What were your first impressions when you when you read the script? Did you Did you see the script before you before you took the role?
4: I didn't. I had yeah. the opportunity to meet Mr. Michaud at the Chateau Marmont.
3: And, right, because uh, he wrote it too. He wrote and directed it. He did. Yeah. Sir, so yeah. he
4: can kind of just tell you in person, like, "This is what I want to do." That's it. And yeah. that's what I, I just sat there listening, and I wanted to get a sense of his vision as the filmmaker, as a writer director. And he's a yeah. fine filmmaker. He's made some really great films, The Rover and. Animal Kingdom. Animal Kingdom's great, amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's really talented. So I just wanted to listen and get his take on the film, and uh, I just let him know that you know uh, that I was ready if if he was interested or wanted me to go to work.
3: And had you heard of Mike Flynn before? I mean, had you followed all this stuff when it happened in the
4: news? No, I, I really was not aware of him. You know, until yeah. I really read the book, and then I learned about the relationship between he and General McChrystal, and of course, uh, you know, Lieutenant, former Lieutenant General Mike Flynn is. Uh, very interesting man. So, you know, we, we share in common is he's from New England. And I just thought, well, this is a huge opportunity. This is the biggest opportunity in my career. So when I met with David, I I just let him know how much it would mean to me to be a part of it. So I was really, uh, you know, blessed and very fortunate that he gave me the opportunity.
3: Yeah. Did you ever meet General Flynn?
4: No, sir, I did not.
3: Yeah. But no. but you had part of you had to be watching this crazy news cycle thinking, holy smokes. Because the film's already in the can, right? As Mike Flynn becomes... Uh, First, you know, the National Security Advisor, then the disgraced ex-National
4: Security Advisor embroiled in this whole Russia
3: thing. I mean, what were your feelings watching all that?
4: Well, to be honest, I mean, I'm just here to promote the film and and to speak to that. But, I mean, it's been a fascinating year in politics, to say the very least. Right. You know? uh, Yeah. And, you know, despite anyone's personal politics, I think, as I said, this is really a film for our ages because it manages to blend incredible dark satire with a very powerful, impactful know, war film that it kind of evolves into. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. So yeah. it's, it's truly brilliant what he what he pulled off, Mr. Michaud. Yeah, well, and and going off of of Flynn, but to
3: Greg Pulver, who's who's described in the film as um as having anger management issues. I mean, a lot of the comedy of your character <laughs> comes from them, sure. right? Was that was that like a guy a guiding principle for you? Like this guy needs to freak out a lot.
4: You, to be honest, I, once they changed the character's name in the original draft, I hope I'm okay to say this, but Mr. Machado had the characters written as. Um, Hank, I think it was Burger, General Berger was, okay. was the name. And for whatever reasons, he, he changed it to pulver. You'd have to ask him why he did that. But it was great because then I'd come to the set and uh, and Brad would call me the pulverizer. So I, I kind of got <laughs> to liking it, you know, and it was yeah. a real privilege. And, and again, playing those beats where you're really kind of oscillating between finding the humor in it by playing it straight and then the discovery of lighter moments, which is great. Yeah. And so I just chose to play him more of a jarhead, you know, more of like a Marine, you know. And, yeah. I have a lot of, uh, military history in my family. My grandfather was in World War II and, uh, you know, he fathered 13 kids and then I had an uncle that was in the Korean War and then one that was in the Vietnam War. So I took this very personally as a proud, you know, American and, and patriot and, and a lover of our country. Um, so that was all the impetus I needed. That was all the, the inspiration I needed to know that I was working with Mr. Pitt and Plan B and, and Dee Dee and, and, and Jeremy Kleiner are just such phenomenal producers. So it was a real, privilege you know to be a part
3: and what what do you think looking back over your career what's the biggest change between hollywood when you started out and now
4: does anything jump out at you the first thought i had when you said that was actually cost i think just the the expense of films i think um yeah you know whatever can be said about inflation i'm not an economist but i, I just think that films were when i was a kid in the 80s you know an expensive film was like 10 or 15 million dollars when i was starting out with john hughes you know yeah yeah and i remember there was a sort of breakthrough moment when The first batman was made and tim burton was directing and i remember the industry was kind of took note because wow that was going to be a 30 40 million dollar film yeah and by today's standards and by contrast you know that's sort of a a small studio film is in the 30 to 50 range right so my answer to your question would be that i think the cost of of filmmaking has obviously kind of skyrocketed but also the quality and also television going through a kind of new golden age um, and I think Mr. Serranos understands all of that. Yeah. beautifully. You know? Yeah.
3: Well, you were you mentioned Batman. You were in the Dark Knight, which has got to be a hundred million dollar movie, right? Yeah. And made it all million. back, and then yeah. some <laughs>
4: that was another experience. You know, when I've had, the, I've just tried to focus on working with the best people I can, and that was another, you know, a great auteur, uh, Mr. Nolan, that I got to work for. And uh, you know, I'm reminded of that old saying: "No small parts, only small actors." I was so happy to have that part in the film you know i was yeah. really blessed to be a part of it and i got to work closely with uh, mr ledger and, and mr bale and and it, another phenomenal experience where yeah you know the experience of being on set being a part of it the travel all the the wonderful things that come along with being a part of this industry are right there in front of you and at the same time you get to be a part of something so much bigger than yourself it's wonderful yeah,
3: yeah. well one of the big changes i can think of is when i was a kid um you know HBO. The joy of having HBO meant that you just get to see, watch the same movies over and over and over and over again. And I would say National Lampoon's Vacation, although eventually we had we had a cassette tape that was like a hundred years old that we ran every every time we went on a family vacation, we watched it before we before we went. You've probably heard all this a billion times. It's
4: I can recite I the so whole
3: damn it. movie. <laughs> but can we talk about it a little bit just for yes, like sir. wish I, fulfillment it'd for be me? My honor. <laughs> I mean, the scene with, with I'm going to call him Mr. Chase, because you're so formal, with Mr. Chase in the in the desert, you know, I have a question, like, is that a real beer that you're chugging at age, at age 14?
4: Okay, so there's a thing, when you watch a movie, at the end of a picture, you'll see Foley, right? Like, you're right. like who's the best boy? What are these great, you know, it takes yeah. a village to raise a child, and yeah. it takes a village to make a movie, <clears throat> and... What that was was an empty beer can, and they uh-huh. folied in some guy in a Hollywood studio, gulping later, months or, later. Uh, right, yeah. And we shot that Monument Valley, and my memories of it were, it was literally 120 degrees that day. And yeah. the late, great Emma Jean Coca, poor lady, she had experienced a horrible car accident in, an earlier in her life. And I just recall being in the car, being driven to sit, and she was so paranoid about having to go down to the valley of... Monument Valley to shoot the scene and then when we get out there people like literally were just passing out some of the crew like everybody was so overheated but that scene was just such a fun one for me because I as a kid growing up in the 70s I'm 49 and I I just looked up to all the stars of SNL and and all those films so to be on set working with the great you know Chevy and John Candy and all these incredible people was really uh, unforgettable yeah
3: well and the other one was one of the thrills of my young life was meeting not Jane Grakowski, but her mom was involved in local theater in my town in New Jersey, and so I felt I had a, a personal connection. Yeah, to the film. Yeah, but that scene, cool. this this stuff that you guys shot on the farm, I mean, how, like, how the hell, I mean, when you're like, you know, you got Pac-Man, you got asteroids, <laughs> then it becomes a hemorrhoids joke. Does this? Totally. I mean, do you remember all this? Know, like, I do totally, you have like, vivid just, memories of it? I really, do? You I were really a kid. Do. We shot that yeah. in
4: Bakersfield, and I remember just laughing my butt off. It was really funny to see, particularly to see Chevy and Randy Quaid work together. It was great. But I remember all those scenes. Yeah, I actually went yeah. to high school with Jane. She's a really nice lady. Yeah, yeah.
3: she's she's cool, and yeah. and obviously gone on to a great career on Forty Rock. Absolutely. Um, and then you did this incredible trio of John Hughes movies, and and you became the youngest member of the Brat
4: Pack, and all that stuff. Does the Brat Pack ever get together
3: anymore? Do you guys have like? Uh,
4: well, reunions. Yeah, we kind of see each other. You know, I, I do a lot of sort of Comic Con type conventions and I have fun with that. And I see some a lot of the actors I've worked with over the years and that's a lot yeah. of fun. It's a real blessing. You know, it's never lost on me, um that, you know, I was just a kid from New York City. I had no plans to be an actor and I was just so uh fortunate to to have a career and to, you know, kind of just keep chipping away at it, which is something my father always told me, just keep working at it. You know. So yeah. I have kind of a workman's attitude. I did a picture with Danny Trejo a couple of years back for Universal. It was a, a Western we shot in the mid in uh in Eastern Europe, actually. But anyway, Danny said something to me which really stuck with me. He goes, Mike, I'm like a mechanic. I go where the work is, you know? And mm-hmm. it was very, um, I learned a lot working with him, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I have that kind of workman's attitude about it. I just like to kind of, I appreciate the work and then I just go back into my own life, you know? Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, in those days, it, feel, it feels like, you were kind of a stand-in in some ways for John Hughes at that. He was writing roles that maybe were that maybe were. It seemed like the role you were playing might have been the role that was like put himself putting him in there, kind of the nerdy guy, the yeah. sensitive, vulnerable guy. Yeah. In some cases, I don't I know. Do you ever talk to him about that? Or
4: I, you know what? We had so many talks. I have to yeah. say. I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here without John Hughes. Yeah, this guy changed my life. He was such a wonderful guy, very kind and compassionate and funny, and was such a, a natural and and qualified leader. He had a, such a good sense of empathy and compassion. And he really empowered us all. He gave so many of us opportunities. Um, so I think in terms of his muse, I think it was Molly in some cases. Maybe it was me and others. And yeah, but I think the thing that I, that I'm struck with most as I reflect on his life and the work I was fortunate enough to be a part of was he would sit right next to the camera. This is before video village. This is before everybody had a, an iPhone and everything. And so, you know, he would literally laugh or cry with you right through the take. Really? So he was your first audience. He was like right there with you. And such a wonderful man. Um so along with he and Ned Tan and these people that gave me that break when I did 16 Candles many years ago and then it yeah. led to these other films. It was just uh it just changed my life and so I'll always uh, salute Mr. Hughes.
3: Well, you know, this the, the ostensible purpose of this podcast is to talk about awards and I and I know that you went to the Oscars right in 2010 as part of a, a John Hughes reunion. Yes, sir. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that experience? What was that like? Had you been before to the Oscars?
4: I'd never been. I was so blown away. Honestly, I needed to sort of meditate and kind of ground myself for a couple of days because I was so nervous about it. (laughs) And when I got there, I was like in the green room with all these, you know, major actors and stars, whatever you want to call them. And they were just, I was just really kind of blown away by it. But I was also taken by all the little moments and everybody there that was a part of it. It was such a magical thing to be a part of. And I also feel that over the years, you know, it's such an illustrious thing. It's it's the top of our industry. Um, yeah. And at the same time, I think that maybe comedy doesn't always get a fair, mm-hmm. um, you know, shake when it comes to the awards season thing. So, it was such a wonderful tribute. His wife was there, Nancy, and his two sons um, were there with their wives. And it was just a really beautiful night. So, I was at once a little nervous and very excited to be there. And I was just trying to really take in the whole experience. It was quite, Yeah. Really There's, amazing. Is, you know? Any
3: funny stories happen while you, while you were there?
4: Mm, I can't think of anything funny. It was just all awe-inspiring. Honestly, you're at the yeah. Kodak Theater, and you're just sitting there going, it's kind of out of body. You know, you're kind yeah, of like, yeah, wow, yeah. am I really here? It the same feeling to... like when I get when I drive on a lot, and I'm going up for a meeting or something, I'm going, wow, this is like, I'm on a movie lot.
3: Well, you, you've done so many projects. You're, you you have, have had a band. You've had, like, what's is there anything that, if you could do one thing now, is there anything... That you know, you dream of or you just kinda keep an open mind about what's next?
4: I do keep an open mind about what's next. And something my father always taught me was this old, it's actually a Wall Street term, kiss. You know, keep it simple, stupid. And I, yeah. I, I just want to cultivate good relationships and I wanna work with great people like I had the great fortune of working with on this film and and uh, eventually I want to start writing and directing and so those are in the works, you know, oh, cool. plans. And yeah. I have a small production company it's called Manhattan Films and, and just starting to develop and Put things in order so I can uh, build to that that point. But to be honest, it's about the company you keep, and I think um, this was honestly the, the highlight of my career.
3: That's that's great. Yeah. Did you ever go to uh, film festivals and to
4: check out Not really. things? I've yeah. always felt like if I wasn't in part of it, I would feel like. Well, now kind if you have shlup. your if you have your <laughs> uh, production company, you can go scout talent. Yeah, you know? hey, you know what? I would love to. You know, I, I think um, there's a great place in that. I think you know, um, film should be. Uh, they shouldn't do. I think this film will endure. You know, I think this is really a very special film and I hope uh, audiences are receptive to it, despite their personal politics. I think it's a film that really, uh, you know, um, it's very powerful in many ways. Yeah. And also very lighthearted in many ways.
3: No, it is. I mean, it, it tells a hell of a story and I think, um, and I think it's, you know, you're in a funny spot here playing somebody who's based on, on someone who's so in the news. Yeah. um, and so it, it becomes extra, even more fascinating than it would have otherwise been as you watch and think, oh, I wonder if this is what Flynn's really like. But but also it totally fits the film and it's a great performance within the context of the film. So I congratulate you Thank and, you, sir. and uh, thanks for coming by and spending some
4: time to talk to us. It's been a real privilege. Thank you, sir.
1: That does it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget, you can still rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing from you and uh, getting your feedback. You can find us all at Vanity Fair, and especially Richard's Can dispatches and lots of other reporting from our team out there. Uh, and we're all on Twitter at Men, and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike?
3: Mike underscore Hogan.
1: Joanna? Joe wrote this. And we've lost Richard, but he's at Rylaw's. This episode was produced by Jennifer Lye and edited by Jordan Bell, thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the worst progress on his language acquisition classes goes to Richard Lawson in France.
2: Uh, C, is that that (laughs) French?